Next station is Finch. Finch Station. This is the terminal station. Prochaine station, Lionel This is a Victoria Line train to Brixton. Rocket Riders, welcome back to the next stop. For part two of Shut It All Down, I will be speaking to transit rider Lori Scop about her experiences being stranded during Miami's transit shutdown. Helen interviews Adam Birch, activist bus driver, about his stand against the Minneapolis Police Department. Say Miami to anyone and certain images come to mind. Long stretches of beach, Cuban sandwiches, getting stranded at your bus stop when the transit system abruptly shuts down. That last one might seem out of place, but it's what happened to thousands of residents of Miami-Dade County the evening of Saturday, May 30th. Those same transit riders would find themselves without wheels for the rest of the weekend, too. The system remained shut down all day Sunday as well. Now, all too often, the voices of transit riders are left out. So, we welcome Laurie Scott to the podcast to discuss her experiences with the transit shutdown. So, Lori, thanks for being with me today to hear from anyone who rides transit and how they dealt with the shutdown, how they think about the decisions that were made to shut down transit. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So could you tell listeners just a really brief bio about, uh, and how you use transit in the Miami area? Thank you, Vincent, for reaching out to me. I am a Miami native. Right now, I use transit for several reasons, one being that I have significant injury to my hands, and I am transit-dependent at the moment, and I use transit to get to work. I use transit for different kinds of errands. I use transit basically to travel all over the city to do basic things that I need to do on a daily basis. I ride the bus, train, mm-hmm. I ride the trolleys, the metro mover, everything pretty much that we have here. And it's been an interesting experience and definitely was a surprising experience when we had the shutdown over the summer, for sure. Yeah. So I'm sure that day, I mean, for me it would be, I'm sure that day is etched in your memory pretty shocking to us up in Canada actually to read about how abrupt and last minute the shutdown was. And and Miami-Dade was hardly the only place to do this, but it was a pretty significant shutdown. Could you maybe walk our listeners through what happened uh, on that night? How did you find out the system was shut down? How did you get home and around for the remainder of that weekend? Definitely. It was was a shocking experience. You know, at that time, clearly there was uh, a lot going on all over the country here in the U.S. Oh, yes. You know, Miami is still a new city, so to speak, in comparison to other major metropolitan cities in the U.S. And, you know, we are still in the process, I would say, of evolving. And at the time... The protests were were going on. We had a protest here in Miami as well. I had moved recently. I had a lot going on that weekend. Things were a bit in flux. I was working remotely at the time, and things were just a little bit chaotic. And 
when I learned that the, the shutdown with transit had happened, I was actually in a laundromat of all places. Oh boy. And I heard that this is what was happening and things at home were a bit chaotic. And that's what I needed to be doing at the moment. And that's where I was. And I was there alone with the laundry attendant. And a police officer had actually come into the laundromat and told us that we needed to leave that things were being shut down in the city. And it was a bit chaotic, to be honest. Um, I was just finishing what I was doing. I had other things that I needed to do at home. We heard some reports on the news that there were other things around the city that were going to be shut down. Basically, um, things all over the city were being shut down. And everything had happened really fast. It seemed like nobody was getting a lot of notice about anything. And all of a sudden, you know, my mind just went to, okay, well, what's going to happen with work and how am I going to get other things done? And, you know, what does this mean? You know, it was, it was challenging. I then knew that I was going to be more reliant upon Lyft. Things were going to be a little bit more expensive. I had other expenses at the moment. I've had several health challenges that I've had to attend to that have made things challenging in their own right. And, you know, then this all called into question, you know, well, why is this happening? And for some, that's been controversial uh, here in Miami. And for others, they found it to be a pretty easy answer. You know, for myself, it was okay. You know, how am I going to manage to get things done? And so in Miami, again, you know, we're a new city. In comparison to others, transit is often looked at as a class issue, whereas in other cities, you know, people use transit because it's just part of daily life, whereas here it's something that people do because it's the only option that they have to travel or it's something that they just end up having to do because of, of access issues for the moment. Mm-hmm. It was a surprise and how quickly it happened and the fact that people just weren't given notice and then in how it affected different groups of people. I do social work. I was really, really concerned in that way and how it was going to affect many different groups of people and how many people were stranded and how many people weren't going to be able to get to work. There are certain types of responsibilities that I had at the time, even though I was working remotely and certain things that I had to do in the community and being that I was reliant upon transit because of my hand, how was I going to uh, be able to fulfill those responsibilities? Was I then going to have to make more of a monetary investment to fulfill those responsibilities and what was going to happen? All of a sudden, everything was just up in the air and everything stopped very abruptly. It was just very quick. And very surprising. Yeah. If I might share a story myself, 10 years sure. ago up here in Toronto, the G20 meeting took place. So I was in university at the time. I had a part-time mm-hmm. job. And uh, it was downtown. It was at a, basically at a government-run amusement park. And f- for some reason, we were still open, even though they had fenced off the entire business core. And I had worked for four hours, and they sent us home. But we knew that day ahead of time that the, the city had said if there, is, if there are events taking place near the conference site, that transit will be shut down in that particular area. So ahead of time, we knew this and were able to take a different route to get home. I was able to choose a different bus that went sort of around 
the downtown mm-hmm. area. And I was able to get home to my home in the suburbs. Transit kept running in the entire city. It, it was shut down in the very immediate downtown core for a few hours. So there's a big difference between how Toronto handled this and perhaps how Miami-Dade handled it, which is really interesting to me. It's kind of interesting you also brought up the class issue because while that's still present in Toronto, we do have a lot of people who live, I guess, take transit or ride their bikes and whatnot by choice. It's not considered to be a terrible thing to do in certain areas. So there's a bit of a difference to how transit is seen. But I want to sort of turn to your, your talk about increased expense because other cities that have these kind of very last minute shutdowns and curfews like Los Angeles actually reimbursed riders for the taxis and the Ubers they had to take to get home, Mm. which was still not great, but at least there was a recognition that something happened. Did you get any compensation? Do you know if something like that was ever thought about by the transit system or the county? No, to my knowledge, that was not offered to anyone. My understanding is that our mayor made this decision based on the idea that public safety came first and he felt concerned that public transit was going to be used as a venue to transport people to the protests that were happening that evening and as a way of people going to the protest and inciting violence in the city. And he wasn't going to allow that to happen. And that was his one and only concern as it pertained to this event. There wasn't thought about consequences or other repercussions to what was going to occur for riders being stranded or other uh, monetary consequences to riders, for riders. And um, no, I was not offered any compensation. I don't know of any other riders that were offered any monetary compensation or what could have occurred for anyone who may have not been able to get to work or others who couldn't get home or or what could have happened. I know that those consequences are obviously very, very severe for others, much more than they were for me and and not being able to do errands or, you know, ways in which it kind of just became more of an inconvenience for me. But these are things that we need to talk about when we look at at problem solving in our city for for sure. Miami-Dade is a, a very, very big place. Our public transit system is one of the problems that I hear people complain about often when it comes to public concerns, that's, that's for sure. Um, our traffic problem is, you know, in and of itself a big issue, but public transit is as well. It was not designed in a way where people can easily get from point A to point B quickly, easily, from one end of the county to the other, there are a lot of grievances that people have with the way that our our routes were designed. And there have been a lot of suggestions that have been made on the part of our county commissioners at different times to try to revamp our public transit system. Progress has been slow. 
But, you know, just because of all of that, when you make decisions so quickly and without warning, the, the consequences can be, you know, pretty severe for, for some people. And, and when that happened, it was you know, very, very challenging for some members of our community, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine that a lot of those consequences, financial, getting to work, even just the stress and how it affects your health, could be affecting people right down to this day, several months later. And it didn't seem like that was considered uh, at all, actually. And the unfortunate yeah. thing is we might be into a long series of events like this in American cities. So counties and transit systems are going to have to think about how do you handle running a system when people are protesting, when citizens are, are in the streets with a grievance. Obviously, this podcast is not going to make public officials necessarily listen to transit riders, but what do you think transit systems should do next time? Because there's probably going to be a next time. I would say that when it comes to just problem solving in general, whether it pertains to transit or any other issue that affects the public, the voices of the people need to be heard. And I think the role of any elected official, first and foremost, is to listen to the voices of the people. I wish, wish that happened more often than it does. Just to, maybe just to tease at that okay. for a little bit, what does consultation look like? Uh, with regards to, I mean, we're going to focus on transit, but you could probably say, check out about housing or planning or jobs, anything like that. But what does consultation look like uh, in the Miami area? Like, are public officials' responses to people's concerns? It doesn't sound like it. Do you have an opinion on that? Um, I, I do. Um, I think that some of our elected officials are more accessible than others. I think that I think some are more accessible than others. I have a good friend who is a county commissioner. She is a social worker and an attorney who has been deeply, deeply invested in our community for many, many years. She really knows the needs of the people, um, and she is running for Miami-Dade County Mayor at this time. Her name is Daniela Levine Cava, and she has made herself accessible she sounds to like support. the people. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I, yeah. I believe you would. Yes. And there, you know, there are others, and and then there are some who purposely are involved in, you know, public service, unfortunately, and and run for elected office for the wrong reasons, and they purposely make themselves inaccessible to the public. Unfortunately, yeah, um, I mean, and that is partly how sometimes these things happen. Honestly, I think I'm on the same page with you because uh, we're fairly progressive folks uh, here at the podcast and in our friend groups okay. and whatnot. I suspect there's a political earthquake coming in the United States, and I hopefully the chips fall in the direction of the people. That would be my choice, and yes. I think probably yours as well. So I wish your friend luck uh, in running for mayor because I would Thank be. You. A, I think it's important to have elected officials who have real lived experience as a working person or helping working people. And yeah, to me, though, they could make a big change because by definition, those folks are accessible because they've lived our lives. But I do want to end, end the discussion on a lighter note. We always try and do this. 
So Helen, my, my podcast partner, and I are really big foodies. So when mm-hmm. the, the borders open again and we're able to travel to the U.S., and if we find ourselves in South Florida, where do you suggest we eat? Oh, my goodness. There are so many wonderful places to eat in Miami. I, I couldn't pick just, you know, one one. But I will tell you, there is every type of food that you could imagine. And that's one of the, the amazing things about Miami is that you will meet people from every walk of life here. That's one of the things that's kept me here is that you really grow as a human being and being around people from every background and every walk of life in living in Miami. Um, and you will find every kind of food in Miami from Cuban food to Italian food to Chinese food to Argentine food, and you will find it in five square miles. So you yep. can pick anything and uh, you will not go wrong. Sounds amazing. And, and you know what? It, it, I'm glad you, you think that way because it sounds like you'd, if you ever make it up to Toronto, you'd fit in quite well. That, that might be all the time we have for our conversation. And you know what? We could talk a whole heck of a lot more because the intersection between transit and social justice is an obvious one, and the shutdown exposes that. So I really like thank you for, for talking a little bit about how that played out in Miami. It's really, it's really helpful. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for your interest in this important issue and in our city. I really appreciate it. My next interview is with Adam Birch, a bus driver for Metro Transit in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and a member of Amalgamated Transit Union Local 1005. Adam is a union activist who is committed to building the strength of organized labor and furthering its participation in social movements. I spoke to Adam about his decision to take a stand against the Minneapolis Police Department. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Great. Thanks for having me. What was the local reaction in Minneapolis to the killing of George Floyd? After, you know, after George Floyd was murdered by the police on uh, 38 Chicago, which is uh, the south side area of Minneapolis, pretty much immediately, like, there was a protests that developed there at the intersection. Um, And then the next evening was when protests got very large and there's speakers kind of just from local activist organizing groups and different movement for Black Lives affiliates. And then there was a march that started from there, uh, from that intersection to the third police precinct. Along the way was primarily like a working class neighborhood kind of around the area. And so like along the route uh, to the third police precinct, there was just like a very much overwhelming show of support for the protests and people participating. There was a lot of people that came out into their lawns and porches and opened their windows and just kind of waving and very much immediate homemade kind of like makeshift signs and just kind of overall support. So yeah, so there was a, quite a lot of outpouring support kind of like from the community from where murder happened. And then, you know, we made our way to the third police precinct where the four police officers involved were kind of stationed out of. And um, almost immediately, the protesters were met with, you know, all the riot gear that police use, tear gas, stun grenades, pepper spray, and the like. 
Park Rounds. That was almost a point pretty soon after the main protests uh, had arrived there, the third precinct. But you know, kind of like just immediately kind of like following, there was just like, you know, I think in around Minneapolis, there was just like very much, just a lot of anger at, of course, what happened. And there's been an unfortunate history, you know, young unarmed black men. And there has never been like a feeling of justice or any kind of proper kind of recourse or certainly no changes to really like how the police departments function after these horrific killings. And so in with the particular brutal way that the police killed George Floyd in this case, I think that all kind of culminated into kind of just like, uh, like a very determined mood that this time was going to be different as far as like actually serving some kind of justice um, or that there's going to be like significant substantial changes made to the police department. How did the protests affect your job as a bus driver? Yeah, so almost the following day, so I participated in the in, in like the first day of protests, but then the following day, I you know just had a regular shift for work, and it really didn't affect me until I was on my route or I was I was actually on a layover, and I got a message from kind of like transit control, like the way they communicate buses. And it most of the time it's like, you know, overtime's available, yada, yada, yada. But this time it was like overtime's available for police bus work. And, you know, if you're available, we will need, need it as a police bus. And, you know, it was the intersection where the third precinct was. And so I knew that they were probably preparing to make mass arrests of protesters. And so that was kind of my first indication that my job could be affected uh, because of protests. And so that immediately tipped me off. And I knew that this is how Metro Transit more or less operates when there's movement mass protests. Before I was hired at Metro Transit, I participated in the protests after Fonto Castillo was murdered by a Twin Cities Police Department. And after we occupied the highway, Interstate 94, Metro Transit buses were kind of more or less commandeered by the local police department, and they use Metro Transit workers, bus operators, to transport arrestees to jail. And I was a part of one of those arrested that night and was transferred to jail that way. So I knew that this, so like I had personal experience of like how the police is supposed to use Metro Transit buses and workers. And so I was more or less wanting to do what I can, use my position as now a worker at Metro Transit and somebody who had just participated in the protest the day before to do what I can to potentially at least refuse my labor to be used that way and to and to try to convince as many other of my coworkers uh, to refuse as well. And you know, that would be a very material way that I could participate in the in the movement and show like kind of real solidarity with the um, movement that was developing to at least undermine the police efforts to try to make mass arrest. You wrote a viral Facebook post on May 27th. Here's an excerpt. As a transit worker and union member, I refuse to transport my class and radical youth to jail. An injury to one is an injury to all. 
The police murdered George Floyd, and the protest against it is completely justified and should continue until their demands are met. I will encourage and try to convince all my co-workers and fellow union members to also refuse to assist MPD sending protesters to jail. Adam, why did you make the post? Yeah, I was, you know, kind of, or not kind of, I was involved in the protest the day before and being active and organizing in the Twin Cities previously around previous Black Lives Matter protests and movements and occupations after, you know, the, the Jamar Clark killing in North Minneapolis and after the Fama Castillo killing in Falcon Heights, you know, like I thought that this needed, of course, this injustice needed to stop and the racist police actually needed to be held to account. The victims needed justice and there needed to be like substantial change to the police department. And so I felt like um, the protest against it was, of course, justified. And I think, I, I, you know, I thought it uh, should continue until the demands that they were raising were met, which I think were completely justified. And my position as a transit worker for Metro Transit like put me in a unique role where I could kind of withhold my labor, use my position as a worker to give material support and a show of solidarity, not just words, but actually actions or like inactions by refusing to be used by the same police department that just murdered George Floyd. And I knew that I would have support from my local, my union, and its leadership. And I felt like unions, the labor movement, that, you know, has been on the march recently with the wave of teacher strikes, but has been kind of like, has been on the defensive, relatively speaking, for the past several decades. And I think that there is an opportunity, I think, for labor unions to kind of like reassert themselves as being one of established organizers on the left and that they can uh, not play a role in just immediate workplace actions, but a role in social movements as well. So I thought this was just like a really tangible way to try to make those inroads. So I was trying to uh, kill a few birds with one stone, I guess. How did you convince your coworkers to refuse to assist police? So right after the post and kind of like the next morning when I realized that it was getting, you know, the traction it did, I thought that it might be worth to start an online petition and kind of like attach it to the post and get support that way as a tactic to be used online. And I created it in a way to kind of like, look, like if you basically use a lot of the language that I used in my original post, but then added that like, look, like if not just if you are also a union member, but if you want to as well use your labor or not use your labor in this case to withhold it as a show of solidarity or if you just want to be involved in you know trying to build the movement and kind of have a labor for justice for george floyd is how we titled it and showing that this is a section of the organized working class um, that wants to be in solidarity with this movement and is disgusted by the racist police that murdered George Floyd and so wants to involve itself, not just as individuals, but try to bring the additional weight of their union of local. So that affected a broader scope of union folks, not just in the Twin Cities, but across the country. But as far as my individual workplace goes, I went into work the next day and almost immediately when I went into work, they're completely shutting down the transit system, like across all 
operations. And so because of the escalation of the protests and that were happening across both, not just in Minneapolis, but also in St. Paul. And even if that didn't happen, sniping into my garage at that moment, it was very highly politicized. There was a lot of discussions on you know what was developing. And of course, when they shut down the transit system, like basically anybody that was left was either going to be used as a police bus or to take arrestees to jail or to shuttle the police themselves or what would then also be included as the National Guard. But basically those that they were sticking around were almost asking themselves, are they going to be used in this way? And so it provided a good opportunity to have conversations and kind of discuss this out with them because this is what they're already debating. And a lot of drivers were, I mean, it's kind of a political um, reason, but, you know, they just were concerned about their immediate safety. They didn't want to be put in harm's way and just wanted to stay away from the protests if they possibly could. And so there was that level, but then also like a deeper, more, political reason was to, of course, not assist the police department that just killed George Floyd and that there has been kind of like a litany of previous abuses by the police departments and that, you know, a lot of my coworkers are people of color. And so I feel like a immediate sense of being affected and, and felt just kind of a sense of solidarity with the movement as well. So, and I got people to sign the petition that way as well just right there kind of like on the shop floor and definitely got a level of interest from people that day around kind of like what they could do as far as the way that they could be involved and participate in the movement. But I mean, not to say that like every single transit worker that I work with, like agreed to, you know, not show the police or, or not take arrestees to jail. But the reason why it was effective was not just because of my actions, but because our union leadership, our local ATU 1005 leadership, and they were able to call all of the drivers that were potentially on call to be used this way. And they were able to tell them that, look, like the union completely supports you refusing this work. And if you do, you won't be punished. Like, and if the company tries to do so, the union will represent you in the grievance process. And not only that, the company tried to not pay drivers that were on call because they refused to be a police bus. But the union had eventually was able to get them paid for being on the clock. But so it was really a collective effort from it wasn't just me, but something that was initiated, but even like I sent that post, I was in contact with my union president, Ryan Timlin, and was kind of discussing what kind of options that we have and what was the best way tactically to refuse to do this thing. My post kind of allowed him the leverage that he needed and the other officers and elected leadership in the union, what they needed to issue a letter in strong solidarity with the movement and just reinforcing the idea that this is not the appropriate way that transit should be used. And eventually the company changes policy and it's not going to ask us, its employees, its bus drivers anymore to take arrestees to jail. Um, They'll still ask us to be police buses, trying to shuttle police around, um, but we have the right to refuse to do that. 
So yeah, I think, you know, as far as the overall movement for Black Lives Matter is concerned, like it's a small victory, but I think it does kind of show what workers can do, how they can use their labor, and that these little wins can create confidence amongst other workers and just the movement more generally. And, uh, you know, these wins can kind of like build on themselves um, to uh, something larger. You've been a vocal proponent that the labor movement as a whole needs to organize broader social movements for change. The Amalgamated Transit Union has historically been supportive of transit rider movements in the U.S., while some other sectors of organized labor have lost that history of community organizing. Do you see transit workers and riders as natural allies in the fight against racism and police brutality? Absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right that some unions are better than others when it comes to social justice work or broader social movements outside of the immediate workplace. And certainly ATU, you know, I think is, is another one of those better unions like Larry Hanley, our late president of ATU International, was very good as far as building solidarity between riders and drivers around a number of things, including fare-free demand as something that ATU was advocating. So that, that that part's important, you know, of unions, including demands that affect the community and riders as well. And that's not just a ploy to get the community or, or riders to support them when transit workers might go on strike or during their contract battles. I mean, that's real. I mean, additional ridership is good for any transit agency and is a particularly reflected in how we get funding from both the state government and federally as well. And so doing what we can to increase ridership is critical. But to kind of like answer your question more specifically, I think the teacher strike wave, they did a very good job of doing this, of like including demands in their struggles and during their strikes to include what would benefit their students and what would benefit their parents. So just broader community demands, like just like increased school funding, you know, decrease the class size, these sort of things. And I think it's critical like for the labor movement in general to take these lessons even a step further. Because yeah, you're right. Like unions used to be much better at this. When unions were their strongest, they were much better at this. They knew intuitively that to build the most collective power possible, like you had to include demands that span beyond just the immediate scope of the workplace that they are representative of, but also include like the broader community as well. And so of course they were involved in the civil rights movement, involved in around housing campaigns. Yeah, this was when the reunions in this country were at their strength. So I think that to build, I mean, it's not the only thing, but I think like part of how we can build the strength of unions again is to show that because of our position in the workplace at the point of production and the potential to shut down capitalist profits, we do have a level of strength as a kind of unique one. And so I think marshalling that into social movements more broadly, like what would be Black Lives Matter or the housing campaigns to build more housing with union labor, like a workers' good new deal to transition us away from unsustainable fossil fuels and to build more, you know, renewable infrastructure with union labor. Like, you know, we can link up in a lot of ways, what will strengthen unions, but it will also strengthen uh, social movements more broadly. So that's kind of like how I see how unions can improve themselves or how unions can improve themselves 
kind of just be, I think, key and kind of like left organizing more generally. Because I think the Black Lives Movement is very dynamic and has, you know, a lot of strengths. But I think something that is potentially missing or could be improved upon is just kind of like a level of organization and structure. And after days and weeks of protests, I think there does need to be, this could be public meetings to discuss next tactics and the best way forward. And I think that unions have the organizational structure to at least provide a framework for how that can be possible. So yeah, I think there's just a lot of room for unions to play just a better role than what they are now. And I think it can improve not only the position of labor, but also provide a level of assistance to the broader movements as well. I want to end this interview on a fun note. What's the weirdest or funniest thing that's happened on the job? I don't know. Like, I, I saw this question and I've been kind of thinking about it. There is a lot of stressful things that happen on the bus, but there are those little moments that, like, do make you crack a smile and have a little laugh. Just the way that writers interact with each other, different conversations that you're overhearing, things that are directed to you as well. I think, like, some of those moments of solidarity between drivers and writers is really moments that are fun on the bus when, you know, a car pulls out in front of you and the bus reacts angrily. Like when there's this like broad agreement on this bus that like, God damn that driver, you know, he just pulled out in front of me. So I, I do enjoy those moments and I shouldn't be admitting to, but maybe when you like a light's turning yellow and you kind of push it as it's turning red and the back of the bus shows their appreciation for uh, making it through the intersection and not stopping at that red light. And I do get some comments like, hey, I really like how you're driving. And those are not like the, the compliments that you would want a company to know because maybe you're maybe driving a little too fast. But those are the kind of moments that uh, fun. We've had our share of anti-racism protests in Toronto, but not to the size and scale of those in U.S. cities. We haven't had our lives upended by curfews and shutdowns, but we made this episode in solidarity with transit riders and protesters who continue the fight for racial justice. Thanks to our guests, Laura Nelson, Laurie Scott, Terry Nagoyan, and Adam Birch. For our next episode, another installment of Station Shorts, where we'll visit the infamous Bessarian Station. As always, remember to subscribe and download the next stop through your favorite podcast service. You can also listen to us on our website at thenextstop.ca. Follow and like us on Twitter, Facebook at The Next Stop Pod, and Instagram. We also have our Patreon page, where you can join Sheila Paisy Allen as a supporter of The Next Stop. I'm Vincent Puhaka. I'm Helen Lee. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>